Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got the Beat, the podcast devoted to teen entertainment from the 80s and beyond. I'm your host, Michael, and Mindy's on the other side. Hey, you're sharp today. Good I job. am. Uh, I had some caffeine, everybody. Um, th- we'll be discussing, well, this is the weirdest thing. This should be the 25th anniversary, also the release of Scream 5 kind of conversation, but it's not. We're short like three weeks, so just give it a little bit of a curve here. But uh, we're going to be discussing the first four films of the franchise, working up into the uh, the fifth movie. I, I've never seen the show. I'm assuming it's unrelated. Have you ever seen it? No. Yeah, I don't have any interest. Uh, I have issues with four even existing. Uh, mm. uh, I guess we'll get to that. A bit. Yeah, but let's start off with the first one. Uh, 1996, horror is dead as fucking dead can be. And we have uh, a, a minor hit with uh, fear and a slightly bigger hit with the craft. So it's clearly there's something in the water that teenagers are looking for a new generation of horror movies to go to. All the classic 80s franchises are dead. But there's nostalgia for them. You know, like the slasher film. Instead of, I think at this point we were stuck in like really big budget kind of uh, retro, you know, like the Bram Stoker's Dracula and the Frankenstein and stuff like that. Oh, sure, uh-huh. And, and just really low-budget, cheesy garbage, and most of it was being either barely released or was from, you know, like, uh, or direct-to-video. And, mm-hmm. but it did feel like you, you need to go away sometimes in order to have any for, sort of fondness and nostalgia, so therefore... Uh, Scream comes along, and there was some buzz before this. This is when I started reading Variety magazine, and Ooh. I had heard there was some buzz from test screenings that this was a really good movie, and then it came out in December of all times. Really fucking weird, right? Like for Christmas. Um, yeah, I think the, the timing of things really can have an effect on its success or failure. Yeah, I mean, the cliche is either summer or Halloween. You you basically have August and October to release a horror movie. That was the, the rule for so long. Um, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it became standard after Scream was a hit that every year there had to have been a horror movie. Most of them from Dimension Pictures had to come out at Christmas time. And they never really fared as well as the Scream franchise. Um, but I just... It was one of these things where it did not open... Big. I think it was like a seven or nine million dollar opening, but the buzz and the word of mouth just kept going and going and going. And I think you and I saw it in the theaters. What about three weeks in? I I want to say we didn't see it in the very beginning. I don't know. I mean, I I was pretty sure that we saw it in the theater, but any more than that, I I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it was the end of Christmas break because I was in college at this point, and I I had to have done it before like the second week of January. So we saw it fairly early on. We saw it in a very packed theater and it was just a hoot. But the one big thing I remember was first off the black lady <laughs> saying, shoot him in the fucking head. <laughs> that was sitting like in the row next to us. That made me laugh so fucking hard. And the two uh, young kids behind us going, this is the bloodiest movie I've ever seen in my life. This is disgusting. And you kind of whispered to me, wimps. <laughs> <laughs> That's because they didn't uh, apparently get raised on, you know, Slash. Like I did. Yeah. Uh, by this time, I think you had already seen a few horror movies in the theater, but you had definitely been educated on VHS with a ton of 80s you know, horror movies and maybe early 90s yeah. a little bit. But there was something also fresh about this at the time. Now I fucking hate it. Is the self-aware commentary. It's not necessarily a spoof. You know where, where yeah. it's kind of uh, dryly... Uh, poking fun at the genre this is literally commenting on it as it's happening and that seemed really fresh at the time but now like all those movies and fucking Dawson's I, Creek and it just really drives me up the wall now I call that meta yeah I guess meta I also can be well no I guess Final Girls it works I don't know why it works is it because they're actually in the horror movie yeah yeah, it works. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying that's what meta really means. I don't know. I, usually, meta is a little deeper than that. But to it, you know, to 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 acknowledge the situation that they're in, 
to some degree, and but it not be tongue in cheek, you know? Yeah. Or not be poking fun. It's it's different. It's a different level. Because it acknowledges right. it acknowledges that there are slasher movies. They've all seen them. They know the rules, whatever. But also using that as tools to help survive in the situation that they're in. So a movie within a movie kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and everybody from this became a star. I mean, everybody. It saved Wes Craven's career. Drew Barrymore got a big bounce from this. Were you shocked when she died? Because I did not, I, if I remember correctly, none of us expected it. Oh, I mean, if I remember correctly, I think everyone was shocked. Yeah, <laughs> I think she that was, was the point. Yeah, she was the main character. She was the biggest name from what we believed in the first 15 minutes. On the poster, she was... Wait, I think they redid the poster. I think when we saw it, it was just the hand over the face and a cell phone in the other hand, if I remember correctly. And it was mm -hmm. about a month in is when they redid the posters. You remember how every movie, even like commies, would have that lineup yes. on the poster? So many movies did that where they'd have an image above and then they'd have the main stars and it would just filter back. Um, yeah. Like the focal point would be the main two characters and then focal back on all the other supporting characters. But... um. Drew Barrymore was put almost as if she was the lead on that second poster. And it worked really but well. I mean, I, I think that the misdirect is intentional and, you know, it kind of gives indication of what to expect from the rest of the series. Right. And, and it's also an homage to Psycho, one of the very first slashers, uh, if you count it as a slasher. I'm not sure. The rules keep changing. People keep saying it was Halloween, then it was Black Christmas, then it was Psycho, then it was Peeping Tom. So I'm not sure what is. But the fact that you stayed with Janet Lee for so long and all of a sudden they take her out of the picture, you're like, what the fuck? You know, that was really yeah. a kind of an homage to that. And, of course, bringing back the masked killer. And that was kind of a trope in early 80s slashers before, like... You know how there's the stars of slashers where where the hero or where sorry the villain was almost like a hero you know where you're rooting for him like michael myers jason and freddie and chucky and stuff like that they wore a mask sometimes but you always knew who was under the mask mm -hmm. but there was also like that small period of time like with prom night and stuff like that in my bloody valentine where they were wearing a mask but you didn't know who the killer was and that would become a trend after this, too, because everything after this, I mean, there's so many influences later. Um, there's I Know You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, Valentine, uh, Cherry Falls. I'm trying to think. There's, it seems like there was a dozen of them. They were just trying to come up with new ways to hide their face. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think not just, the, not just the hiding the face part, but just also the genre just exploded again yeah and you know, people became it, interested in horror yeah like with like wrong turn you know a, a house of wax remake just like so many yeah well there's uh, like three the three schools of horror movie at this time you have the direct screen knockoffs which use the same formula but a lot of those remakes, I think, or throwbacks are because people were nostalgic for that horror, which Scream reminded you of. And then there was a weird turn in like 2001 where I think that was burning out and adults also wanted to see grown-ups in scary movies. And no one really gives it credit, but The Others was so massive at the time. And it was a ghost story, and it was sophisticated, and it was like a juxtaposition between this and Scream. And How I many years after Scream was it? Four and a half, I would say. You still... You, have, you, have you seen that movie before? The Others? Yes. I have not seen it since we rented it the first time. I, I'm pretty sure I saw it at the movie theater. Yeah, I remember renting it. And if you look... The, one, the movie that's had the longest lasting impact is The Others. Because look at Conjuring. Look at all, every time you turn around, uh, there's mm -hmm. another ghost story that's very successful. Blumhouse um, yeah. must have seen something in that formula. They, they paid Nicole Kidman a decent amount of money, and the rest of it was lower budget, self-contained into one place. And, and that's another way to make it very efficient. The Scream movie started becoming so expensive that it almost negated itself from profit. Mm. 
because the first one was a hot buy. I, I, I remember the script was really being talked about. I Some of their studio was competing to buy it, but Dimension offered um, a huge paycheck for the script, but also guaranteed this many, three, uh, this many screens, this much budget. So they actually spent $14 million um, when horror was dead. Um, you know, most of the time it was like three or four million dollars for a horror movie from that company. They really bet big, and they also won big. Yeah, I wonder what just what made them just take that kind of risk. Yeah, they didn't they have, have to seen something, you know. Yeah, in '96 they really don't have any big hits. Most of their movies are topping out around twenty-five million dollars, and just something must have screamed to them. Ha ha! Uh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, <laughs> that this was gonna be a potential hit. I would say they were a little too fast, I think, to make this sequel. I think there need to be a little more yeah. breathing room because I, if I remember correctly, they were still editing the sequel almost to release date. They're like, they're making prints the week before. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's the general flaw of Hollywood is the oversaturation, or not just Hollywood, you know, every, music industry whatever is the oversaturation and not not knowing you know uh what the right timing is and then you're just like i'm so fucking tired of seeing this actor yeah. or you know this 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 series needs to just die already yeah the uh the one thing that's interesting is about how the cast Every, like I said, every single person got success after this um, in various forms. Uh, and then it almost, you know, f filtered away pretty fast. Like, no one ever figured out how to use Nev Campbell properly. Uh, no, I agree with that. And I think she knew it. That's why she stepped away and she started doing independent movies. Because 3 to Tango is one of the worst fucking concepts I've ever seen in my life. And they hired three fairly well-known actors at the time to do this. And it shows you. No one knew what to do with Nev Campbell outside of horror. Um, yeah. I think Courtney Cox, of course, she had her show at the time, but she had a little bit more success. Uh, Skeet. Skeet Olivers, the weirdest fucking name for a leading man to put on a poster. People were hot for him, but he just could not get a hit. Like, they hired him a lot. Yeah. But yeah. His, his... And he did a lot of really, like, his, his stuff was all over the place. Yeah. And it seemed like chill factor is what really put you know put ice on his career but i would say his best <laughs> i did it again i did it again yeah i swear to god this is not intentional <laughs> um but i think his best work came a decade later with jericho and i wish that had been more successful god bless jericho yeah. uh yeah you know sometimes people really you know there's a reason why television is respected a lot more than it used to be, really. I'm not saying television is better than it was, although I, I'm basically saying television is better than it used to be. <laughs> like, just so much more depth and, and quality is, is possible in television. And, and you know, Jericho was one of those. It's like, hello, it was like, you know, science fiction slash whatever. And, it, you know, you also don't expect such character development and such loyalty to uh i mean i guess this was probably a similar time as like firefly and stuff right yeah. so it makes sense the the veracity you know of of devotion but i think that show was really worthy of it the uh i'm trying to think of who uh jamie kennedy of course blew up years later with uh the jamie kennedy experiment he was doing really well after this because he uh mm -hmm. well people loved him for one because he was the everyman. He was the guy that you kind of saw through his eyes. Uh, you know, like yeah. if you knew something about horror movies, you were riding along with him. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but I mean, you know, he did a lot of different stuff. He was, like, he's likable. He's, you know, but he's not, He's you're right, he is much more relatable. Yeah. I, I still really love that story stupid movie he did but i don't even care it's so funny uh whatever kicking it old school oh yeah when he goes into a coma that is a good one it's so dumb but it's 
so funny. Yeah. I don't know. The problem is, you know, of course, we're trying to separate the movies from the actors. Now Jamie Kennedy is so fucking annoying, I can't stand him. And Rose McGowan's a fucking yeah. psycho, so forget that. But everybody else seems to be holding their own. Uh, Matthew Lillard, I think, uh, severely underrated. Also, yeah. used pretty badly. We went and saw some of his movies and we're excited about it. And then when we saw him, we're like, nope, they misused him again. Can you fucking remember Wing Commander being like, what? Yeah, I think that it was a mix of him being young and excited and maybe not making some of the best choices. But also, yeah, them not knowing what to do with him. But I'm going to, I mean, we talked about this before and I'll mention it again. That, like, I think that he's made some decent choices in his later years. Yeah, well, um, I think Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo kind of changed our perspective. He was so perfectly cast, and then Without a Paddle did really well, and for some reason, it just kind of disappeared, and he started doing a lot of TV, um, and I saw him, like... I, I love, yeah. I just love how committed he still is to Scooby-Doo and Shaggy. He still does the voice of Shaggy, and he has been just movie after movie after movie, so obviously there's something like that's meaningful to him about that character or and or that he really relates to because it's like every couple years or every year there's another Scooby-Doo movie that he's, you know, Be Cool Scooby-Doo. He did the voice for several years. Um, you know, he just continues to commit to that. But it's not like he's holding on to something because he's desperate. He's done, he has lots of work. Yeah. He does tons of things, lots of TV shows, um, including, you know, just just the last few years, which was a pretty popular series, Good Girls. Okay, um, yeah, last time I saw him was on Halt and Catch Fire, so he's kind of turned into a dramatic actor. But I, I really think that what turned him into a dramatic actor, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about the timing, but I had mentioned to you that he was in... Uh, he was so good in that movie with um, with George Clooney, uh, The Descendants, in 2011. I think that kind of, you know, it got nominated from, for some awards. It was pretty well respected. And I thought that was, re I was so surprised and impressed by him in that movie. I think that's where things kind of started to turn for him. Oh, okay. in In a more serious way. Yeah, I should probably see that. I still haven't seen it. Um... It's, I mean, it's, it's serious and it's, you know, pretty dramatic and it might not be some, I don't know that you'll enjoy it, but I think it's a valuable thing to watch to really see, you know, some good performances yeah. and especially for him to see him really just take on some, you know, meatier stuff. Yeah. Here's the one thing is the one main actor that we're, we haven't talked about yet is David Arquette and oh, I have seen him do... I've seen him do dramatic work. We both thought his best performance was The Gray Zone, a movie that was barely released that he never, that nobody ever watched, whatever, uh, it, you know, about uh, Holocaust uh, camp. And Ugh. I watched it and I said, we've been wasting this dude on these stupid fucking comedies. And I don't get how these directors and, and studios see Dewey and say, hey, this lovable kind of aw shucks guy that, you know, goes this whole, who should not have survived <laughs> beyond part one. I mean, he gets a fuck beat out of him in almost every movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they cast him in like stupid ass movies like Ready to Rumble, uh, C-Spot Run. I like Eight-Legged Freaks, but it's still like he's just being loud and obnoxious. Uh, there's a little bit of empathy there with his character, but I just don't understand how they saw the Scream series and that's what they offered him. And that's so weird. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> again, I think that there's a lot of people who have been misjudged and miscast and and also, you know, m misfires on, on the part of the, the actors themselves too, you know? Yeah, that's true. We don't know what the paychecks were offered and they're like, how can I turn that down? Holy shit. Yeah, we don't know what his other options are, you know, if he wants to try to, he's trying to stay relevant and these are his options, then, you know, he's just doing his best, but, yeah. uh, I don't know. There is one other cameo in this, uh, it wasn't really filled with cameos, uh, I feel like, like the later entries were filled to the brim with cameos, but there's Henry Winkler in this, and uh. we hadn't seen him in years, and it kind of changed your perspective, like, 
holy crap, he can do something more than the Fonz because that's what all we ever saw him do. And since then, he's done great work. I mean, of course, after this, he did Waterboy, but I, I love him on Barry. Oh, my God. He is just like, he is magic on Barry. He is magnificent. I mean, if, if for people who haven't seen this show, like, like fucking go watch it as soon as you're done listening to this podcast. It is the one of the best things I've seen in years, yeah. the point where I've watched it like multiple times. What's your favorite it episode? You know my favorite episode. Is it the one where they fight the little girl? <laughs> or the little girl yeah. actually just kicks the shit out of them? I think that's everybody's favorite episode. <laughs> it's, well, it's just so shocking. It's yeah. so shockingly like brilliant and ridiculous. Um, anyway, you know, it looks like he has several projects. I was going to say about David Arquette. He has actually several projects in the works. And some of them like look a little bit kind of promising. So okay. let's, let's be hopeful for him. But yeah, yeah you know... About Henry Winkler, I think, yeah, he took a, a break for a long time, or, you know, he's written children's books. He did a lot of different stuff because I think he just needed to be seen in a different way. Do you know that he was offered the role of Danny Zuko in Greece? That makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. And he, it, well, yeah, he turned it down because he didn't want to be the font forever. Because yeah. it's pretty much the same thing. I'm so curious. Like, I'm curious, I didn't look this up, but I'm wondering how many directors or actors were offered Scream and turned it down because, you know, they looked down on the genre. I think this is, Scream is the first yeah. time in a long time people looked at the genre and gave it some, at least begrudgingly uh, gave some respect. You know, I was like, yeah. well, hell, look at that. It brought the whole thing back and it kind of changed the, uh, the, yeah. the uh, tension towards it. Um, but I do love the fact that the original script does kind of subvert some of the expectations the biggest one i think is the fact that she sleeps with her boyfriend which you never did in yeah. slasher films because if you have sex you're dead yeah and it was kind of a way of saying look just because you have sex before marriage or whatever it is doesn't mean you're some whore that deserves to die that's some weird <laughs> like subconscious like christian revenge yeah. or what do you want to call it like uh, prudish i think you're right <laughs> it was a first step into not vilifying sex like i think it was you know a more sex positive thing which you know the lord we need more of in the world still yeah all those years later um i wish i still feel, say, yeah i still feel like every time you watch anything with sex in it it's always some sort of cautionary tale it's weird yeah uh, yeah i mean it's a little bit better but i think uh that <clears throat> Yeah, it's still awkward. I wish it would stop being so awkward. Yeah. Um, I was going to say just a few interesting bits that I got from like the, the trivia, you know, is that originally Drew Barrymore did get offered the role of Sydney, and it was her idea to take the part of, of Casey because she thought if if they if they, you know, cast someone like her and killed her so quickly, that that literally anything was possible and yeah. that would you know which i think you know again really did a something special for the for this the whole series yeah um <clears throat> another well, thing is that some of the tory spelling was considered for city prescott uh <laughs> Um, also, who else was offered the role? There was a couple people who were offered the roles that turned it down, of course. Um, oh God, I can't even keep track now anymore. Oh, Molly Ringwald. As Isn't that who? strange? Sydney Prescott. Are you serious? She was like 35. <laughs> Maybe not that it, old, but. She said, it, she said she was 27. Okay, still. That's... And, that's, and that's why she turned it down. Yeah, okay. That's wild. But just, just but, but, you know, it's one of those things that you're just, you think about stuff and you're just like, ah, what a different movie this would have been. The other thing that's interesting to me, which you probably figured out, is like most of this movie was filmed very near where I live. Yeah. Uh, in um, a lot of it was in like Santa Rosa and Healdsburg, uh, and you know the wine country, uh, you know, uh, up 
uh, not quite the Bay Area, but close. Uh, I don't know why that's interesting to me, but it is. Well, not a lot um, of movies were shot up there. I think it originally was set up to shoot in Sonoma or something like that, and then they found out what kind of movie it was, and they pulled out or something like that, or they wouldn't let them shoot Oh, there. I think what it was is if you look at the end credits or something, when he makes, there's a comment that he put in the end credits, like the thank, the thank yous and stuff. Uh-huh. It says, no, no thank, no thank to uh, Santa Rosa High School or something, because they had agreed to let them film there, but then then when they found out, yeah, that it was a horror movie, they backed out. So it was the school, uh, I think, in Santa Rosa, and then they ended up moving over to Healdsburg, which is a you know a very nearby town. Oh, okay. Um, in Sonoma County. So, but yeah, I had I, I read that somewhere in here. That I... that's. The one thing I was thinking about is the soundtrack for this wasn't big. It, the next few were really pushed hard. But um, this one, I remember hearing Red Right Hand by Nick Cave. Oh, I know. And they play yeah. that over and over, and it kind of sets the, the tone, too, with the music. Marco Beltrami, I think, did the score, and he kind of bounces off of that song. But every time I think of it, I think of Lloyd and Dumb and Dumber walking down the road with a giant cowboy hat, ping pong b- uh, paddle, whatever, and uh, it's playing Red Right Hand. <laughs> that then in turn makes me think about Jim Carrey and that weird music video he did. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. I think it was a funnier die video. Oh. I'll, I'll have send to it to you it. later. Yeah. The, uh... send, it's so bizarre. <laughs> So by the time part two comes out, the hype is so fucking huge. And the big thing was not revealing who the villain was. And we were shocked when it was two villains in the first movie. Can you hear that? Yeah. Hi, Pepper. You might want to. Yeah, like we didn't expect two killers. That completely threw everybody off because you were so sure Billy died. And then in the second one, I was like, who is the killer? And I remember being so fucking paranoid because my friends went the first night. They went Friday and I was going to go Saturday. I had something going on. Or no, no, it was sold out. And so uh, half the half my friends went the Friday night or whatever. And I remember my roommate threatening to tell me who the killer was and I wanted to strangle him the whole time. And um, he was going, and the killer is, and he, he wasn't going to tell me, but he loved to torture me. Um so we had seen hype for this way before you know there were there was a soundtrack that was being pushed heavily do you remember uh makeup say yeah i do that was selling a fucking soundtrack and then there was uh the cottonmouth kings and stuff like that and i just remember like they're really pushing it and this is when all the cameos started going a little crazy like if like people were calling favors and like sarah michelle geller had just come off of doing uh, I know what she did last summer. They rushed that production. Like, the minute Scream was a hit, that went in production. And so she must have come in for, like, just a day. The same thing with Joshua Jackson, because he had just done uh, the pilot for uh, Dawson's Creek. And I feel like there's a few more cameos scattered in this. And I, th- I still think the mystery's good. I think the fact that they kill off um, uh, Jamie Kennedy's character. I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Um they kill him off was a true fucking shock. The fact that Dewey was still alive, at least they gave him real damage because he got stabbed in the back. And usually in these kind of movies, if they survive, they don't really show. Like all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm okay. I got shot 16 times in this last movie. I'm fine. (laughs) Like literally every movie, you're like, oh my God, they killed Dewey. Like I really, really thought they killed him. Yeah, because he gets stabbed again. He gets in the, the sound booth room, whatever. Um, but I do like the fact that there's a bit of a gap. They deal with the repercussions of the first movie and the fact that Gail had written that book and then she pissed off Sydney. Um, I do like that balance. Um, I also like the fact that this is one of the first horror franchises where, yes, the, the, the scream face killer is what sells. That's the mascot you can put on property. But this is the first time I think I've ever seen where they continued the survivors like they gave them a story instead of a whole new group of survivors oh yeah trying to think is there any other horror oh fright night fright night may be the only one i could think of where the survivors from the first come back for the second yeah um i was just you know you were talking about all the all the crazy amount of 
um, cameos and stuff. I mean, I don't know if these people were, were really famous at the time or not, but there's just like an ass load of people in this movie. Portia Rossi, Rebecca Gay, Gayhart, right. uh, Louis Arquette. Portia um, Rossi, right? I just, I just said that. Oh, did you? Sorry, it cut out. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jerry O'Connell, was he famous at the oh, time? Right. Well, after, he... Was this after Jerry Maguire? It was after Jerry Maguire. So he had done the first two seasons of Sliders and Jerry Maguire. So yes, he was getting to be well known after the uh, for the you know for the getting cast into this. Yeah, I will. I will say that although I realize now in retrospect that he was doing a lot of indie work before this, this was definitely my introduction to Lee Schreiber. 100%. Yes, yes. Because he, um, he is yeah. in the first movie, but they only take a picture of him, and I think there's I mean, some like grainy footage, and that's it. Super, super, very brief. Anyways, um, oh yeah, I forgot about you know at the be the beginning part with Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps. You oh, know, right there's yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, and it introduces <laughs> the stab thing, which is a continuous. Oh uh, right. Yeah, throughout the sequels, this will come up. The stab is the supposed to be the movie within the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be their version of uh, what happened with uh, the events of the first movie. And, uh, well, it's the movie based on Gail Weathers' book, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and we have Laurie Metcalf. Uh, you think that she's being cast to type, and they throw you for a loop, and I love that mm -hmm. twist. Um, yeah. But what really, I the minute I saw Timothy Oliphant, I was like, oh, that dude's, that dude's somebody. That dude's going to be, he didn't become really a star for a while. He was always kind right. of a support. But I was like, that dude right there, he's got something that nobody in the first movie had. Anybody I really think of the whole franchise has. There's like, I'm going to say it, a sexiness. Like the kind of a burning uh, hot guy quality. He's got, <laughs> he's got like the it. swagger. Yes, he's thank you. The, I'm not good with words, you know, people. I definitely did not remember that he was in this movie. But I will say that he is 100% like one of my very favorite actors that, that exists. He is so amazing. Um, and I think my, the first time I remember him was in Go. Yeah. Which I don't, was was it after? It was after that, right? Yeah, it was like it was a like, year, oh. just a little bit over a year later. But still, it still took him a while to start, you know, really making his mark. Right. Well, I think the first time I think people knew who he was was when he was the villain in Live Free or Die Hard. And then he was, uh, in the, he was in the Hitman right after that, and that did okay. Uh, and then uh, what Justified was a couple years later, and that's I think what you know that just kind of built for him for years. Well, before well, he really what I think really what made him a star, although we wasn't on our radar, was was Deadwood. Oh shit! I forgot about that. Okay, you win that one. I forgot he did Deadwood before he did Die Hard. So never mind. Scratch yes. everything I said. I'm a buffoon. Yes. So, but still, I mean, for me, I was aware of the existence of Deadwood barely, but it was also not uh, something I was interested in, and I couldn't afford HBO. So for two, for and that's not you know that's the case for a lot of people that even though for you know it got on the radar for a lot of people. It still, it still took them, you know, more to get. That's not necessarily mainstream either. No. Um, but I will tell you that I absolutely fucking love him. If you've not seen this show, you need to. Santa Clarita Diet. That's what I've been told. Yeah, yeah. My absolute favorite thing with him because it, he has such a timing for humor that I don't really think he's had a lot of opportunities. To, to exhibit before and his his time I mean he's just hilarious he's just so good um, <clears throat> it's still kind of a fucked up show and it's like twisted but it has a lot of humor that I just deeply deeply loved him in so please watch it someday uh, so uh, Scream 2 is just as big as the first one didn't take as much advertising as I mean they really advertised I think most of the Scream profits went to advertising it which seems silly. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, it had been on video, so it was huge. It built word of mouth on video. So uh, 
we we get a part three, but I, there was a delay because I think a lot of people were starting to get you know get booked on projects. I think most people got signed to Scream Two the minute Scream One was a hit. Now they're starting to field other offers, and Wes Craven himself said he didn't he wasn't completely interested in doing it, and he wanted to do something different. So he signed on to Scream Three, but he did Music of the Heart before that, which I've never uh, seen. What but a good I've heard, movie! It is good. Yes, okay. It's fantastic. I know it got a, a lot of awards. Worked... It wasn't very successful, but it got a lot of awards. No, I think it's akin to like, um, like a Mr. Holland's Opus kind of thing, oh, okay. like, okay. like you know, kind of a motivation, like a very endearing motivational kind of character in a more serious thing. But I mean, if Meryl Streep, of course, it's gonna, it, it was good, but very different for Wes. Yeah. And it's the only opportunity he had when I remember reading reports when they pushed Scream 3 from December to February, he was upset because he wanted to end the decade. Uh, uh, you know, that would be his final film of horror for the 90s and that he was going to go into different genres after that. And the only time he even got kind yeah. of away from it was Red Eye. Um, you know, that's more of a thriller, but... I think Scream 3 is where it starts to topple a little bit. And I think a lot of the problem yeah. is the fact that by this point, Kevin Williamson is so busy. He's he's just finishing off, I think, season two of Dawson's Creek. He's directing and writing Killing Mrs. Tingle. And he only had the outline for this. He just didn't have the time. So they got the writer of Reindeer Games, of all people, um, to come in. His name is Aaron Kruger, decent writer. He ended up doing uh, uh, The Ring later, and I think that's really where he hit his stride. But uh, he finished out, you know, the, what, what Kevin Williamson had given for the plotting. But apparently it was torture because leaks like crazy. This is when everybody wanted to know. They wanted to know what the next story was about. The internet is in full bore, you know, news uh, kind of world um, where people are trying to reveal what's going on with it. So they kept having to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and it wasn't working. And I think that's a lot of the problem with this. It also has too much commentary on itself now because... Yeah. The fact it's shot on, what, Stab 3 is the set that they're on. You know, the movie within the movie within the movie. And the fact that they have fucking Jay and Silent Bob show up for cameos. And they're, I just, it doesn't work for me. Plus, by this point, I think I'm exhausted with the whole family tie stuff. Um, yeah. Which... It just starts just to get really, like, silly. Like, it's like, you know, why we like the first one. I mean, it is, it does have... Obviously, the, the tongue-in-cheek, because it's acknowledging, you know, the horror movie genre that it's in. But uh, by, by this point, it's just, it's just getting kind of, like, ludicrous. Yeah, and in Cotton Weary uh, returns for just a brief cameo in the beginning, they wipe him out. And as someone mentioned recently, I thought it would be a brilliant idea. They spent $40 million on this movie, and it's not like they couldn't afford to do this, but if he had been killed on his talk show. That would have been more interesting because the listeners wouldn't know if he's fucking around or not where he's just killed at home. Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, this one, it, it's playing within uh, the set pieces of Stab 3. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. But what I really like about this is Patrick Dempsey's comeback. Because we hadn't seen yeah. him for years. And all of a sudden, he's no longer gawky Patrick Dempsey. He's like, Ooh, what the fuck? Fuck Studley, what's going on with you, buddy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's definitely, I definitely remember being like, what? And I was certain he was going to be the killer. Bad. I was so I know, sure. They kept setting it Even up. Even rewatching it years later, I was like, I had this here. He's got a fish, you know? Yeah. I uh, never expected Scott Foley to be her long lost half brother. What was it again? I don't know. It's just, yeah, half brother. I just think it's a lot of bullshit. He was like the she the mom had him years before with John Milton the Lance Henriksen character I guess yeah whatever I don't know there was just so much like I don't know why do like, I know that name John Milton is that from some book John Milton I Oof, probably that's bug I don't know um um <clears throat> anyway uh yeah it just you know what it, funny because what it felt like to me is like pretty little liars which you probably have never seen but no. it's just such it's basically the same thing it's just fucking absurdity 
when every time, every season, you're like, oh, that's the killer, that's the whatever, and then you're just like, wait, there's seven more seasons? <laughs> I don't, and, then it's just, <laughs> and it's just like, no, seriously, really? There's a somehow another killer, another killer, another killer? Like, I don't know. It just... It just gets so ridiculous with like every single family just has these deep, ridiculous secrets with, with like, oh, the secret twin sister that was put up for adoption that you didn't know. You know what I mean? It's just like, just such a caricature. Um, And that's how number three really, it really gets that way. Uh, by the way, John Milton is the writer of Paradise Lost. I've never read Paradise Lost, but I wonder if it's a commentary. I thought that Milton, but I didn't remember that his name was John. But yeah, that's probably a nod, right? Yeah, um, I think I also think the the performance by Parker Posey doesn't fit with the movie, but it made me laugh my fucking ass off. <laughs> it's the only like I mean I think that her commitment, or at least her character's commitment, that is displayed in there is probably the most enjoyable part. Yeah. Uh, still a big hit, not as big as, uh, one and two. And I think part of it is because it opens in February instead of having that three week Christmas break and basically nothing in January to compete with it. You know, this one, it really only has that one big weekend. And then after that, it filtered out pretty bad. Plus the word of mouth wasn't as strong. Uh, and you, I think it has a good finale, you know, it's with any good trilogy, the first and third are the bookends, you know, like the way it was with Die Hard and Back to the Future and stuff like that, where all the stories flow together, but the first and third, you know, are part of the, you know, closing of the triptych. And, uh, you know, they give her peace at the end and four felt like, oh, everybody here needs a hit. Badly. <laughs> uh, Dimension Pictures, uh, you know, after being kicked out of the Disney world because they spent too much money. And plus, clearly there was something going on with Weinstein's that Disney knew and they didn't say anything. Um, uh, you know, Wes Craven hadn't had a hit in a while and all those actors had just kind of faded away. And you bring in Scream 4 and I went and saw in theaters and I got to tell you, the first 20 minutes, I was like, what is this fucking bullshit? This is like, this is trying so hard to be Kevin Williamson, and yet I looked at the end of the movie, it was written by Kevin Williamson. And I was like, <laughs> it's like, but, but I'm saying it's like he's doing a spoof of himself. It's self-parody. And I was like, yeah. you don't even, you don't even have your own voice. You have a replication of your voice that you think the audience wants. So for like the first 15 minutes, it's a fucking waste of time because it's a commentary on a commentary on a commentary movie within a movie with a movie. And there's so many cameos that I almost, I've never walked out of a movie theater before, but I was pissed and I wanted to leave. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not good. No, I also was very disturbed by the man in the theater with me because there's only two of us. And I was like in the middle of the theater and he was in the back and he kept moving around. And I kept going, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Do I need to leave? Does he go stab you? Uh, yeah, is this like one of those things where he wants to have a murder within a murder within a movie? <laughs> you know, I was like, ah! Ooh, <laughs> but yikes. there are there are some good things. I think it starts to, halfway through, I think it starts to find its footing. I think as it eliminates a lot of the pointless actors, as much as I love them, I think the cops were stupid and wasted. Um, though Anthony Anderson's death, is disturbing. I don't even know if it's possible to put a knife through a forehead because of the bone, but his death is truly like haunting to me. Uh, I don't even remember what happens when I didn't watch the movie very long ago. Um, yeah, he's just in the car and he's talking to Ad- not Adrian Brody, Adam Brody, whatever, and all of a sudden the the, the scream face, what do you call it? What is ghost face killer? Uh, comes up behind him, whatever, kills uh, Adam Brody really fast, and um, Anthony Anderson goes to grab his gun, and the knife just goes right through his forehead. And uh, at first, he doesn't even realize what's going on. The, the ghost face pulls a knife out or whatever, and he slowly gets out of his car, and he keeps feeling his forehead, and he's like trying to reach for his gun or his walkie-talkie or whatever, but he's still just like lost. And he keeps patting his forehead or whatever and trying to say something, but I mean, his brain yeah. is all split, and he just falls to the yeah. ground. Yeah, and I thought that was a really good death. Um, but what I love about this, um, uh, Marley Shelton, I think, was great. Um, yes. 
at this point, I think that maybe Dewey needs to be married to her because <laughs> Gail kind of sucks. Well, maybe that was the point. Yeah. Um, I mean, by this point, of course, their marriage has dissolved in real life. So that might be the evolution of part five. But um, and I, I thought they were going to kill one of them and they all three survive. Um, do you do you want to see them continue through all five or is it time for one of them to go? What do you think? Um, <clears throat> I personally would really like Dewey to be the last man standing. Yeah. Well, you know how many people... I just would... don't want him to die. I love Dewey, okay? Yeah. He's just so endearing. Well, let me ask like... you this question. If Sydney had died in the first movie, would there be any more deaths? No. Would it have ended? Or are these guys just killing because they wanted to kill and Sydney just happened to be the final? Because a lot of these people don't really necessarily need to die in the sequels. It's just like they're killing just to kill. But if Sydney's well, out, why I does mean... this still happen? But the thing is, is that in the first movie... I think that they're re they just they had a, a quote unquote reason. Yeah, in the first movie, did. yes. But, but I think they were just using it as an excuse because I mean they just they wanted to to do something sensational. Yeah, so that so makes they sense. Would have, they would have done something even if even if they didn't have fur. To be the the butt of their or their focus of their anger right but two and three is about revenge and i only see them killing maybe two or three other people because like you know they were associated with the first movie you know they're somehow in their heads they're responsible for killing billy and uh i can't remember the other guy uh, matthew Lloyd's character but um but killing all the other people that aren't even associated in any way seems like a just to have a kill count just to have the slasher formula keep going yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that most slasher movies have pretty weak rationale for most of their actions. Uh, I mean, it, isn't it the same argument as like Halloween? Like, why when Laurie is his his end goal, why does he have to kill a million other people and never kill Lori? Yeah, well, it's in his argument. They do establish, though, in the first movie that he likes to study it. It's a game to him. It's like a, an experiment. So he just sees how to scare people and then he kills them. He likes yeah. to watch them die. Freddy kills them because he collects their souls for the power. Uh, Jason kills them because they're on his land. He's protecting the property. Um, okay. So sometimes, you know, some of it's that. And in Hellraiser, the weirdest thing is not for a while are they actually the villains. They're teaching the bad guys uh, what hell is like. So it's, that's an interesting franchise. Chucky, uh, Chucky just loves to kill. He's a sociopath. He'll kill anybody. He has yeah. no. <laughs> but um, in Scream 4, though, she has a very similar plan to what Billy has. Yeah. And that yes. also is uh, a nice pull the rug because you think there's going to be two killers again. She's like, fuck you. I'm the star. You know, I'm going to be the next right. Sydney. And she wants to take Sydney out because she's jealous of her fame. And it's nice that it's a commentary on how when this, when part four came out, all of a sudden everybody wanted to be a celebrity for really not much. We're getting, you know, Kim Kardashian getting famous because she was uh, in a porn film. Right. She obviously released herself. Uh, people right. are getting famous on this YouTube. Is, yeah. This is really just the beginning of what is still very common, right? I mean... You know, being a you know Instagram Instagram famous. I mean, or TikTok, TikTok famous, yeah. or whatever. Like, I mean, it's just it's it's so common now. But this was kind of the beginning of that. Time. Yeah. So that they really got right, and I think Emma Roberts is a like I think the first scary villain in the whole franchise. Like the other guys are scary when they're ghost face, but her without the mask. And I don't think do we ever actually see her with a mask because her herself. No. Is this raw no, fucking electric wound, and she's angry? Yeah, because mostly she has other people do her bidding. Yeah, and that's scary. But I think I also love Hayden Panettiere in this because for a while you think that she might be in on it, but there's that mm -hmm. scene where she, you know, at towards the end or whatever, where she's kind of seducing Rory Culkin, but in a very cute way. She's just making it known. She's sex positive. She's she's being assertive. And her desperation to save him, where she's just rattling off. And, and it's never 
Yes. You know how in some movies where they feel like they're doing fan service or they're doing it on purpose to make the woman a certain way? This one, yeah. I, I believe her, and it's also a commentary on how men always mansplain and talk women down in the horror industry. And I see it yeah. all the time in Twitter, and it's fucking stupid. Movies are not sex-oriented. Movies are for everybody. They're, you've always been a big fan of horror and action, especially when we're growing up, and that seemed kind of odd at the time because that's not what the studios were trying to sell you were action movies. They were trying to sell you romantic comedies and kids' movies and cutesy shit, you know? Um, and I think that she is the modern woman, you know? She's the one trying to save the day. She's the one who knows shit. And I, I fucking but love don't it. you think that that's the message in this whole series? I get from, You know what? You're from, right, yes. From episode, from the very first movie, look how strong there's a there's strong women in every movie gail is such a fucking ball buster yeah she's fucking amazing Get she's the so car. incredible no. <laughs> um i mean yeah she screams like a ridiculous woman but you know so does like dewey so yeah, yeah. but oh, you know, i'll say this every also, movie the women are so incredible this also changed a lot in what you saw in the horror genre is now they were cut like action movies because the way she yeah. fights in that first movie and the way they shoot it is more like a fucking martial arts movie in some ways you know a survival yeah. thriller like the way die hard was they don't shoot it in those slow torturous ah, ah, as the blade slowly goes in she moves and she just you know tries to find whatever she has around her to survive yeah <laughs> it's like jackie just, chan the, the, the survival instinct in these movies I think is really what's so compelling because, I mean, just again with the strong women, but just the sheer like de determination and a will to to be a survivor that they didn't necessarily um, display that kind of raw intensity in movies, you know, horror movies in the eighties, seventies, or whatever. Except for you know, I think Laurie is, I mean. Maybe Laurie Strode maybe is a better, you know, one of the few examples. But mostly in the horror genre, the women just are just, you know, easy pickings. Well, I th I think that Laurie Strode, and this is fucking blasphemy, I think, to the horror genre. You watch those first two movies, she's not strong. She's not. It's not until H2O where she becomes strong, and I think that's the influence of Scream. Because in the first movie, she's okay. just, uh, oh, shucks, I'm such a sweet innocent girl. In the second one, she's traumatized, and she's in a bed, and she basically just crawls around for whatever time she has. Um, the one that is strong, and I think why they offered this to Wes Craven, is Nancy in that first Elm, Elm Street movie. She doesn't fuck sure. around. She sets up traps. She does exactly what to do. She has her plan. No, that makes sense. I don't I don't remember. I think that people, you know, they really, there's almost a worship level of, like, Jamie Lee Curtis and the whole, you know, Scream Queen thing. And so I, I, I have that thought in my head that, you know, that she plays these tough women, but I don't actually remember that. So thank you for yeah. For she doesn't that. to quote the first movie. She doesn't get legit until she shows her tits in training places because she's tough as nails in that movie. She has a plan. She knows what she's doing uh, because you have the first two Halloweens. You have prom night where she seems like she's not really all you know. She's just a generic girl, uh, terror train generic girl. Uh, road games. Um, is the most underrated horror movie of that time period, and she's in it with Stacy Keach, and she's 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 uh, what do you call it? Um, not self-owned. Damn it, I'm not good with words. But um, she's not as like oh shucks, innocent, useless kind of like I need someone to save me in that movie. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's not until later. I scream really did change a lot because that's when we started getting women who were fighting. And that's the big fuck up in I Know What You Did Last Summer is that I think a lot of the times Jennifer Love Hewitt's character is useless. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so we have a Scream 5 coming up next. It says it's always someone you know. And I'm putting my bets on Billy had a kid. Like just like who is fucking left? Like in number four, you know, they suddenly introduced these family members with aunt and cousin. They, she ne they never mentioned it. Why wasn't they? Why weren't they part of her life before? 
doesn't make any sense. But like, who the fuck's left? Yeah, it's that's the only thing I can think of is somehow somebody survived or they had a child, mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah. That's all I can see because it's been twenty five years now, and mm -hmm. Billy or God, what the fuck was Matthew Lowe's character in this? It's gonna bug me to no one. The only thing I ever remember from it is that Izzo disease ah Izzo. <laughs> I love. I, I thought it was interesting how they were saying how Stu. how many of his do yeah Stu how many of his lines he had like improvised. Yeah. I'm beating up, Bill. You dick. <laughs> My parents are gonna be so mad. <laughs> um, Is he? Are we sure he's dead? By the way, because he just gets a TV in the face. Does that really kill you? <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, I feel like there's so many things in number four that are like almost mirror images of number one. Like, you know, the whole like uh, stabbing and like hurting herself. Oh, yes, like yeah. And, and then in uh, like, Roy Culkin uh, being tied to the chair while she has to answer questions. Yeah. So it's like it feels so much like an ode to the first one, which. Straight up, like that's probably is what what they intended to end it and never continue again, people. Yeah. Um, I have super mixed feelings about this next one coming out. I mean, I'm gonna see it because I I do love the series. Uh, you know, the, the the first one just I think totally rocked our world. You know, 25 years ago, and I'm very curious to see. Um, what they're going to do, but I'm deeply afraid that it's just going to be, you know, same shit, different, different, you know, year. Yeah. Uh, at some point it's got to How end, many, you are, know? are they going to, are they going to continue the, um, the, uh, what's it called? You know, all the cameos, but now we're so old that we don't even know who the like yeah. famous people are. Uh, yeah, I, I had a trouble recognizing a couple of the people in Scream 4. Um, like Britt Robinson and Lucy Hale. I had to look them up later, but... Uh, yeah, they well, continue that, that uh, cameo thing through every movie. There's just, there's so many cameos in 3 and 4, but yeah, 4 is like the sweet spot where like, I really did know, like, all the people, uh, but in this new one, I'm not so sure. I'm I'm worried that they're going to be like, hey, we're going to remake Stab, and then we're going to go visit for the anniversary, and it's just, it's going to be a regurgitation of everything, but I can't imagine it's going to cost $40 million. so three and four cost $40 million. Three was profitable, four was not. Four only made $40 million, so unless it made a lot of international money. So I'm going to guess there's not big paychecks on this one. They're going to probably do like the Bloomhouse way of making a movie for like 10 to $15 million and give back-end deals to the actors instead of upfront, you know, like $5 million each. Uh, they're not going to have, mean, a, they're not gonna have a big soundtrack. Movies, yeah, some of those Bloomhouse movies are surprisingly enjoyable. Yeah, but they have a formula of how to make movies profitable, and I think their way is probably better. Mm -hmm. Wow, I can't believe we went for an hour on this. That's the longest episode we've done in a very long time. That's so four, That's four movies to talk about. It's understandable. True. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really would like the feedback. You know, hopefully, you know, somebody who listens to this, give us some feedback about the series, and if does it tie in? Is it worth watching? Like... Is it just a waste of space? Is it good that we're ignoring it? Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Know. Yeah, I don't know if it's connected in any way to that world. Does it take place at Woodsboro High or something like that? Um, I really hope Five is the closing of it or something. Move on. I wish Hay Hayden Panettiere's character had lived, and maybe we're not one hundred percent sure she's yeah. dead. Unless I see him out on a stretcher, you know, <laughs> and put into a body bag, I'm never sure. But I, yeah, I it feel like they should have passed excited. it on to her. Sorry, I was going to say I was super excited to see that Marley Shelton's character is coming back. Oh, thank goodness. Um, yeah, I, I don't feel know. like she heart had hardly done anything in years. I don't know if that's actually true, but she was like, you know, she was kind of up and coming at some point, but I don't feel like I've seen her in a really long time. So yeah. I'm excited that her, I really liked her character. Four years earlier as we saw her in Planet Terror, and that was oh, another big yeah. shot of trying to make her a star, but it just didn't happen. Um 
So that is it for this episode. Uh, next one is going to be back to school kind of uh, episode. Well, get into school, I guess, is how I got into college and Orange County. It is the 20th anniversary of Orange County, so I figured that's a good pairing. And uh, check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind and on Twitter as well. And uh, anything else you want to say before you go? No. All right. <laughs> Fuck that. No. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good night.